0: Hello, it's your host, Kat Walsh, and you're listening to another episode of Trip On This. This podcast is for mature audiences and is not suitable for young children. Trip On This is intended for entertainment purposes only, and we do not condone the use of illegal substances. Enjoy the show. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Trip On This. This episode is unlike any episode I've recorded so far and with Kamiko Hayashi. She's a filmmaker who has just spent the last five years in Ecuador working on a project with the indigenous people on a film called The Roots Awaken. It is such a beautiful story about spirituality and about the environmental problems and issues that are facing the Amazon, which is, as we know, the most important rainforest to planet Earth. And wow, it is just such an incredible story. I will let her tell it certainly better than me recapping it. During this episode, we talk about her journey as to how she even got into this, what the film represents, and we also get into talking more about some of the indigenous traditions around shamanism, how one becomes a shaman, and a variety of different things in that area. At the very end, we have Jimmy Piaguaje come on and also chat with us for a bit. He's an Indigenous filmmaker who is working with Kamiko and had some very interesting insights from his perspective as well, especially as it relates to how Westerners can help support the Indigenous community. Just a couple things before the episode begins. If you're not following me on socials, please do so at triponthis__pod.com. Again, that's at trip on this underscore pod for Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok, and backslash trip on this pod for Facebook. If you are enjoying the show and you want to help support me, please send it out to your friends, your family, your loved ones. It is all incredibly helpful. And with that, please enjoy this next episode with Kamiko and Jimmy. Kamiko, thank you so much for being here. Welcome to Trip on This. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really
1: excited to talk with you and for this conversation. Thank you for the opportunity.
0: Absolutely. I just had a chance to watch the trailer of The Roots Awaken and I am just so excited for myself, for the listeners to hear more about this story. I just can you just talk about what The Roots Awaken is about and what inspired you to make this film?
1: Yeah, definitely. You know, it's a very uh long journey. It actually started about six years ago and I left the United States feeling disconnected from sort of the capitalistic, sort of, you know, artificial feeling of, I didn't feel like a sense of belonging, I guess, in my environment. I felt like I needed to connect more with nature And I was seeking in a lot of ways something that I wasn't able to find in the States. So I actually left on a one-way ticket and I got to Ecuador with no plan. I had been here once before, so I knew people and things, but it was also, you know, a new journey. And, you know, I basically just had full faith in the universe that I had some sort of mission that I needed to accomplish. And then soon after, I actually got invited to a gathering Uh, on the middle of the world, like quite literally on the equator. And it was with indigenous elders from around the world, mostly from North and South America, that had gathered for four days with this intention to initiate this prayer for world peace. And there were youth and elders, and they really wanted to sort of, you know, pass on the baton to the youth. And so that was the first time I was exposed to like very deep indigenous ceremonies, Mm. uh, sort of ancient wisdom. And I had my camera at the time. I'm a filmmaker and always, you know, taking photography and video. Yeah. And so I kind of was shy. Like I, I didn't felt like feel like I was, you know, uh, comfortable going in and filming the ceremonies. But actually, at the last day all the others said come to the the fire there was a big ceremonial fire and they said please film this so i was like okay so i filmed it and i got this download that i needed to actually go and live with the indigenous people to understand their realities and so after that gathering i had made some contacts with some people from the amazon and they had invited me you know to come and visit and so I thought it would be like a couple weeks or a couple months or something. It turned into you know five
0: years actually.
1: Wow, you've uh, been living
0: with them for five years.
1: Not not the whole time consistently, yeah. but you know like uh, traveling between the states and other countries. I was always coming back to Ecuador, and it was something that just kept going on and yeah. on. So throughout those five years, I I lived uh, during different periods of time uh, with actually over thirteen tribes here in Ecuador, and it was very organic. I just filmed moments that I felt. You know, really uh, emotional about a lot of them were ceremonies, gatherings, things that I had never seen before. And a lot of it actually hadn't been filmed. And so, you know, after all this footage, I was like, okay, what's the story? You know, I I created something almost, you know, very artistic without any narration or interviews. Just you're there and you're in the moment. And then I got feedback, like, we, we really want to hear your story, Kumiko. You know, you're the one who went and lived with them, and we want to hear your voice. And so after that, I actually put myself in the film sort of as the protagonist narrating this journey of, you know, living with these communities. And then I realized that, you know, everything's not light in love. At first it was like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. I feel part of community. I'm in touch with nature. But then I started seeing the shadow side, which is all of these huge corporations that are coming in and basically manipulating the indigenous communities. The worst oil disaster in the history of humanity is actually in Ecuador, in the Northern Amazon. You know, over 18 billion gallons of toxic waste was dumped into the
0: most biodiverse place on earth. 18 billion gallons? Oh my God, the damage, I I couldn't even imagine.
1: Yeah, and so most people don't even know this happened and it's... It's crazy because it's literally in the most biodiverse place on earth. So when was this, that? this is, you know, it's called Yasuni. It's in Ecuador. It's sort of where the Andes comes down and, and there's cloud forest. And then it, for all of the water is born that basically feeds the Amazon into Peru and Brazil. Oh. And so it's almost like Avatar, you know, you're in this like magical place. And and I was there and I saw this oil disaster and I couldn't believe it. And so from there, I started including in The Roots Awaken, you know, also the story of these realities that are happening. But The Roots Awaken is really about this indigenous wisdom and, and these people who are resisting, who are, despite all of these challenges, you know, coming forward with the light, they're reawakening you know, not just their roots in terms of their culture, but this new time on earth that we've entered, which is really about unifying, you know, the ancient wisdom in the new technology so that we can really move into like a new paradigm. Yeah, I think, you know, the fossil fuel age is coming to an end. You know, there's only so long that we can continue this. And so the Roots Awakening is showing sort of a way out how we can see an example of, you know, indigenous people, you know, really having this beauty and this resilience despite all of these challenges.
0: Wow. Beautifully said. And it, it really just hearing you say it even more, I mean, but it was so captured even in your trailer. Like I really picked up so much of that. There's a piece in that trailer that I want to ask you about. And I think you kind of touched on it just now. And that is they were talking about this emergence of the fifth world. Can you unpack mm-hmm. a little bit about more of what that what that means to them?
1: Yeah, so actually it's it's fascinating. Um, in North America, you know, I'm from New Mexico. There's the Zuni tribe and then also in Arizona over the border, the Hopi. And they have the same prophecy as the Mayans in Guatemala and Central America as the Incans in Ecuador and, you know, Peru and, and down in South America. And it's basically this you know, even though it's different tribes from all around, they have the same, you know, understanding, which is that on, on earth, there's been four cycles of human existence and each one ended for a different reason. The ice age, you know, natural disasters, and so many of these tribes actually went underground Mm -hmm. into the earth. And it's crazy that, you know, from different places in the world, they have the same story. And so what they've said um, is that basically, uh, you know, around 2012, a little bit before, we've entered the fifth world, and this is the fifth cycle of existence of humanity on planet Earth and actually it's the time of heightened consciousness and illumination which is quite funny because all we see in the world today is disclosure disaster climate change so it's like how is it that we're entering you know this heightened time of consciousness when all we see is you know all of this sort of negative you know reality but actually it's it's sort of like almost like a birthing process like you know the baby's just coming out of the womb and it's so painful and crying but it, it's coming into its life. And so yeah. in terms of time, we're only in the just the very very beginning stage yeah. of the next 32,600 and I think 34 years. Wow. And so basically What's happening is there's a unification of all the different people and cultures. We're coming together now because we're realizing that, you know, in terms of the environmental disaster and climate change, that if we don't unite, it's going to be very difficult to transform the reality. And so also the Pachakutik, which is an in Incan you know, cosmo vision is that this time of heightened uh, illumination is when the indigenous wisdom is going to reawaken. So actually, all over the earth, these ceremonies, rituals that were sort of hidden or kind of underground are going to come forward
0: yeah. for all of humanity. Wow, that's very exciting. And as a very spiritual person myself, I've definitely felt a very big shift personally for myself, like energetically, and I know even here in the States, there is a very similar discussion around us moving kind of from a a 3D to a 5D world, this heightened consciousness and a a unity consciousness, like you were kind of mentioning. And it's just fascinating that, that so many different places and tribes and people around the world have the same prophecy and would not have had the same technology, nor are they speaking the same languages in certain areas. It just makes you... Yeah, it just makes you think and look, it's just such a and come back to the idea of just this birthing process. Yes. I mean, if structures, if massive structures need to come down to be reborn, there's going to be pain in the beginning associated with a crumbling to rebuild into kind of this more uh, fuller world and fascinating. So is that something is that part of what you that's discussed on the on the film? Do you kind of go into what you guys are working towards? As you're also highlighting some of the problems and the, the, you know, the capitalist oil companies coming in and whatnot. Yeah, definitely.
1: Actually, the beginning of the film, I'm sitting in New Mexico with a Zuni elder who's talking about this prophecy. And, you know, at the end, he says there's two paths those who forget and those who know their mission. And then I leave on my personal mission. And then at the end of the film, you know, it it does show this new world in terms of, you know, solutions and within the indigenous people, you know, we have to include them in the conversation. We can't leave them out because they have such an important piece. And the Pai, the Sequoia, which, you know, Jimmy is from, he, this community, you know, the elders, there's one that's 107. I mean, They're incredible, the elders. They know over 2,000 plants by memory for healing cancer, illness, skin infections. None of it's written down. And so one of the, I'll just share, you know, one of the solutions in the film is reforesting all of these medicinal plants for the healing of the people, you know, and they actually came up with this remedy for COVID and seven different plants from the Amazon that helped heal and treat the community. And so, you know, I think actually... I saw some statistic that over like 24% of pharmaceuticals are derived from a plant in the Amazon. And so a lot of the plants haven't even been discovered or recorded from the Western perspective. And so, you know, in terms of health and humanity in this pandemic we're in, I think that the Amazon and the indigenous people have a lot of the answers to what we're looking for. And so that's one of the solutions to, you know, the big oil companies coming in and trying to take over the communities is like, you know, now they need an income. They're they're part of the western world. They want to send their kids to school, they want to buy, you know, computers, they want to have the things that we have in the modern world. So it's no longer like this sort of indigenous way and then the modern world it's coming to a fusion where we can use the new technologies like solar panels and all of these positive things with the ancient technology. Yeah. And so hopefully, um, you know, with the completion of the film, we're going to be able to create a healing center in the Amazon for people from the Western world to actually come and sit with a lot of their medicines as well. So it's quite exciting. That um, is you know, exciting. It, yeah. It, it would yeah. be
0: exciting to just, instead of making it oil in, out there to, like you were saying, to, to, to replant and, and to do it on kind of a, help support the indigenous on a larger scale to be able to do that. Like, wow. Mm-hmm. And what an incredible potential like source of income for them instead of having to deal with you know oil and like you're saying the fossil fuel age feels like it's coming to an end it should be no offense right it's also the um, palm (laughs) you know
1: palm oil is a big one which is in a lot of like junk food and chips and snacks like in the actual wrappers too the palm oil companies they come in and they just plant monoculture palms so They're also coming in and threatening the community, but, you know, it's like they can receive an income and make five or 10 times more abundance by planting instead of cutting down. So it's like, we're, we're transitioning out of this destruction, this sort of paradigm that's not regenerative or sustainable, and we can still have abundance and live in beauty and have, you know, material wealth and protect nature. So that's the new paradigm.
0: Absolutely. It sounds, sounds wonderful. For you, what was the biggest adjustment? Obviously, coming from New Mexico, from the states, it's fast paced. What was that like for you to adjust to now? Go to you're in the Amazon and in, in Avatar. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, definitely.
1: Actually, you know, Ecuador is such a beautiful country that I felt so blessed and so actually easy to transition here because there's so much life force energy, the water, the waterfalls, you know, the forest. But being alone for a lot of it, you know, I definitely had these moments of like, who am I and what's my identity? Because, you know, my father's actually from Japan, from from Kumamoto, a tiny village in southern Japan, and my mother's from the States. And I never felt like I really belonged either in the U.S. having this mixed identity. And I know a lot of people in the States do have, you know, different ethnicities. And so, you know, it was difficult at times being here, like feeling, oh, my gosh, I feel a part of the community these are my people, but then realizing I'm not really from here, actually, you know, I'm I'm also on a Western mentality. Like I actually, you know, have this other consciousness. I know what's happening. And these people live a very sort of simple, sincere life. And so there were moments where I'm like, I don't really feel like I belong here either, Mm -hmm. you know? And so, and so that was quite difficult at times, like sort of like this identity crisis.
0: Yeah. I bet that it sounds like it, but you know what? It's again, like, like I said, like soul tribe, like, especially if you were so welcomed and invited in by all of these indigenous tribes to film them and to help tell their story, obviously you do belong, you know, it's even though that's, that's more probably like a personal thing. Like do I, but they obviously saw it in you to be the one to tell this story and that's just so exciting. And, you know, when I think of things along the lines of plant medicine Mm -hmm. Have you is this something that first that you've done? Have Mm -hmm. you sat with plant medicine? Is this a part of their culture in particular that you've been the tribes that you've been with? Yeah, definitely.
1: Actually, it's interesting as, as a director and as a filmmaker, I found myself also on the shamanic path naturally, without even searching for it or wanting it, the universe has sort of presented that to me as well. So, you know, sitting with the Amazonian tribe specifically, with the kofan and the sikopai, they work with yahe, which is similar to ayahuasca.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, it's the same vine. It's a different leaf. Chakruna is mixed with ayahuasca and they have a different leaf, which only grows in the region coming from the Andes into the Amazon and a very beautiful and profoundly deep tradition of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of years And so, you know, I was invited to sit in the YAHE ceremony and I was, you know, very humble and honored to participate without even really knowing, you know, some people they, they investigate, you know, ayahuasca or plant medicine and they're like, I really want to try it. I had no idea what it was. It was like, do you want to drink a cup of tea? Oh (laughs)
0: my God. That's hilarious. They're like, you might feel a little different after, but you know, just lay back and enjoy it.
1: I think that's actually one of the first times I drank. I was in a community, and they literally like handed me a a cup, and I I thought it was like some just some green tea or something. And I'm like, "This is ayahuasca." I'm like, "What's ayahuasca?" Like, wow. Um, And so it was very natural in in that sense. And then you know, connecting with the hay in north the northern Ecuadorian, it totally changed my life forever because it's like a reprogramming. It connected me back to the life force energy of the universe of of the planet of nature within my own self with my own being and it was like I was reborn and I was like wow I've been living most of my life in a different vibration it was sort of like I got an automatic upgrade from 3d up yeah. to 5d but then you know from a different perspective a lot of I think a lot of westerners see plant medicine is sort of like almost like a psychedelic way, like seeking for sort of an experience. But the indigenous people, it's part of their culture and who they are. It, It basically maintains their unity. And so, you know, one of the interesting things in the film is that there's a mining company that comes in and the Kofan tribe. And Alex, this young leader, he talks about how using Yahé was able to give him the wisdom to lead the people to resist this this mining company and they all started drinking yahe for the first time and this unity happened where they were like almost telepathically able to connect and communicate yep. and that they actually won this legal battle he he studied law drinking yahe plant medicine studying law and what you know took it to the uh, the Ecuadorian government and they won the case they sided with them that mining company had to leave which is very unheard of a lot of the time yeah. these cases are not won and so he talks about Plant medicine is a way of them connecting with their ancestors and also, you know, like having the wisdom, and the courage in the 3D world to take action. Yep. And so for a lot of the indigenous communities, the plant medicine is like their form of resistance, not just like a, you know, a psychedelic trip, but it's, it's helping them, you know, like really change into the new paradigm.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, that was my experience actually too. Although I'll, I'll be fair. I didn't know what I was I didn't know what I was going. I knew I was going in for direction. I just felt very lost, but it wasn't rooted in the understanding of tradition. I was fortunate that my plant medicine, not just ayahuasca, but like also psilocybin, mm-hmm. just magic mushrooms really aligned me to my purpose and doing this and using my voice and really talking about how these bringing people on like yourself that can actually speak to exactly that it's beyond just the trip. It's actually there's. And look, it's not for everyone, but that there is this, um, there could be this aligning to your soul mission and purpose, yeah. and 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 not to say that is for everyone, and nor do I want anyone to have the expectation that is it, but it's a good intention to have because I was lucky that it just happened to I was I was seeking without understanding what I was seeking, and mm-hmm. thankfully I I landed in the same the same place, but
1: and that's amazing because you know
0: a lot of the. Indigenous
1: elders who've been living in their communities, not in touch with the Western world got the vision that they needed to leave. They needed to leave and start sharing the mes- medicine with the Western world because we are all are, we all are interconnected and that a lot of us you know as Westerners are feeling like something's missing and we're seeking. And so they were instructed to leave and start sharing it. So many of these elders have begun to travel to other countries and, and share their ceremonies, and I know for me as well, when I started drinking it, I, I didn't know exactly what I was looking for. And like you, I, I found through my mission, Like it really reaffirmed like what am I here to do on planet earth and to how how can I help humanity? How can okay. I help my community and others? And I think that's the beautiful, beautiful thing about plant medicine is that it isn't just like a one night thing and it's over. It actually stays with you and helps unfold you know, over time to, you know, raise your life state, raise your life condition. And ultimately that's going to raise the life state of, of the earth, right? And so that's why now it's no longer just an indigenous thing. This is a thing of humanity, right? Where yeah. We're trying to heal as one, you know, human race. Yeah, and I'm, so medicine's beautiful for that. And I'm, I'm really happy to hear that you've had that experience. Yeah, I
0: did. And it just like, it makes sense that they felt the call to start sharing it with the Western world and doing that because if the prophecy is right, that we're all going to unite and we need to all come together obviously the western world <laughs> has a very very big footprint on the world and you know that it is what it is right like they just do and so i think yeah as we all hopefully become more conscious beings around here and we can start making bigger choices for the collective uh it just makes a lot of sense I, this was a question for Jimmy, but hopefully you can answer. And it was about shamans and how do you have any insight into how shamans are actually chosen within the tribes? Yeah. So I think
1: each tribe, you know, is different. And, and by no means could I speak like in general about all of them, but I guess I'll take Jimmy's community as an example, the Sequoia, the Siakopay. They're very unique. They're very special. So, you know, in terms um, of shamanism, um, now it's a little bit different but before like in his let's say with his father and his grandfather basically anybody could be interested to be a shaman naturally the interest would would arise like when, when you were young like maybe in your 12 13 or 14 and anyone that was interested could just you know say okay I want to I want to learn and then, and they would start with maybe a group of like 25 young people that would start apprenticing and learning and then there were many sort of like trials and tests and sort of, let's say, stages that you'd, you'd go through in apprenticing to be a shaman. And let's say of those 25 people, I'd say by the end of like one year or two years, only about two or three would, would stick and actually oh. still want to. So majority of them would either, it'd be too much, it would be difficult, they lose interest. So naturally over time, those who, who really sort of meant, I guess, to, to be on that path would stay. And then just a couple of them would become the shaman. And then in their community, the shaman is sort of the sacred authority, not just spiritually, but over the well-being of the community Mm. in an entire sense. It was almost like you could say the president. Yeah. Even though they they weren't nominated, like you are the chief, but everyone would know that the shaman is basically the one that, you know, is in that sense of leadership.
0: And that's because, sorry, is that because so much of what that trials and what that is, is learning all of that ancient wisdom is learning about all the different plans is learning about how to work with spirits is learning about like, it does, is that all the types of, when you say trials, like, is that the type of things that they're, that they're doing, like to become a shaman?
1: Yeah, that, yeah, definitely. I think it's like, it's difficult to, you know, sit, I know one of the things is like for four days, just drinking, yahey or ayahuasca, no water, no food, just the medicine for, you know, four nights, no sleep. And so, of course, it's difficult, you know. Oh, my
0: God. I can't. They, you must be del- so delirious by the end of that that you're just like, okay, I am spirit now. I'm we're right, commuting. Right. I don't know. So, <laughs> so some people are like,
1: okay, after that, you're like, I'm, I'm good. Like, I don't want to do that. And then some yeah. people, you know, they want to continue. But the thing that's really difficult, which I heard from the shamans myself of, you know what sets people aside that become the shaman and those who don't is this deep deep sense of compassion and love for all beings in the community it's something that it's like you can you know in terms of the you know the the physical things you have to do or learning the plans the knowledge base like that that's different but the thing that's really difficult is like this deep deep love and care to almost like put your whole life like your life mission is to care for the people. So you're wow. not, it's like, you're no longer living for yourself. Your life is to care for the people. And yeah. so that's something very difficult for anybody to cultivate as a leader, or as a shaman, it's like, you're dedicating your life with the people, you know? Yeah.
0: Wow. I mean, it's, it is a, it's such a responsibility though, you know, and it really, it really is because obviously for us who has gone through ceremony and just saw just how, impactful it is and feeling, I know for myself, very safe in the container and feeling like I was supported and energetically. And also because I know people also have difficult journeys and to be able to navigate the world that we see and also the world that we don't see. And to yeah. many ways, it's, it's people's livelihood. And so it is a lot. And it's no wonder that when they do have that, it is a deep calling. You know, because that is, it's such a, a, both a noble and yeah, you hold a lot of responsibility when you, when you do pick up the phone and for that call. <laughs> so- yeah. And it's interesting.
1: Actually, I was in a ceremony with Jimmy and a shaman who's is Simone. And, you know, it was a beautiful ceremony. And in the morning, he shared that there were actually like sort of demonic or negative spirits that came and were trying to take his feathered crown off and were bothering him. And, and I didn't see them. Like, I didn't see those guys, you know, like I didn't see them coming. But one of the things about, and then after he shared a story with me about how he actually converted um, physically into a small little bird and was able to go to the center of the sun and he went into pure golden white light energy. And and I'm like, whoa, like this is incredible. And he's able to shape shift into animals and birds and quite literally travel into other places into the Amazon. And it's not like a figurative thing, like they actually transform. And so I'm like, whoa, like this is, this is insane. I want to learn to do that too. And, but he's like, you know, part of the process is to go to the greatest light or to see the most beauty, you have to see the darkest things on earth. So the shamans, the reason they're able to heal and do a lot of light work is because they're actually also able to see the darkest things. And so it's like, to be able to heal, like that, you know, he can heal tumors and illnesses out of people's body. To be able to do that, you have to be able to know the spirit of that illness. Yeah. And you have to meet those dark illnesses. Yeah. So it's something like a lot of people, they just want the beauty and the light of the shamanic side, but it comes with both sides. It's the yin yeah. and the yang. It's yeah. like you need the white and the and the black and you need the sun and the moon. And so and that's why it's hard to become a shaman is because to see those dark spirits or to see that other light of things is very difficult. Yeah. Um so you just can't have the cake. Gonna- yeah. <laughs> you yeah. It takes a lot of going. courage. Um,
0: and it's it's absolutely mm-hmm. God, what a fascinating story about what they're able to do. Is that part of also, you know, Mm -hmm. when they have that calling, is that also what kind of rises to the top? Is this extra sensory, you know, that's probably not the proper term, but these abilities or this healing that they're able to harness and give, is that part of what kind of makes a shaman kind of rise to the top is that they are particularly, I don't know, blessed, you know, with, access. I know I, I believe we all are, but I think just some are more open vessels to it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And also in the community, a lot of the times the the elder, I guess the, the grandfather, grandmother, or the parental figure, when the young person comes to that state where like they're really ready to become a shaman, they actually like pass on sort of telepathically like blessings or gifts or capacities to that young person. And so yeah. I guess, you know, when you're not in a traditional community, you can still learn from a mentor and then they, they pass on, sure. you know, sure. whatever it is to you. But it's really important that mentor and disciple relationship because, yeah, a lot of what it is, that's how it survived for so many years is the passing from one person to another, yeah. right? So, yeah.
0: Wow. What are some of the ways that the Western world right now can support the Indigenous?
1: That's a great question, and should I think Jimmy, I can bring him in in yeah. just a minute so he can join us.
0: I can, I can ask you a different question if you want.
1: Well, you know, that one's a good one. You know, I think it's an important question that a lot of us want to know, and a lot of us are not going to be able to physically travel to the Amazon or these Indigenous communities. You know, I think right now more than ever they're in need of a green new economy. You know, of course, there's always ways of financially supporting the Western, I mean the indigenous communities. They say there's the eagle and the condor prophecy, like that now the eagle and the condor are flying together. Mm -hmm. The condor is from South America, it's the heart, it's the humility, it's the groundedness, it's the connection with the earth. And the eagle is like the resources, the abundance, the money, the precision, the planning. Mm -hmm. And so the West the Indigenous world needs that condor energy, which is the fun, literally the money, the funding, the planning logistics, which they don't, they don't have. And the Western world needs that heart-based, yeah. gentle way. So it's, it's a fusion now that's happening. So in terms of supporting projects, supporting their needs, I mean, there's so much out there that I think people, you know, if they want to and they're called to, they'll find the right initiative to support. But then on a different level, what what we're needing to do as Westerners to support the indigenous communities is to live more local, to create our own community wherever we are. For instance, in the States, buying local produce, you know, going to those farmer markets, reducing your footprint, You know, maybe riding a bicycle to your friend's house instead of getting in a car if it's close, creating this closer-knit community. And if we can do that throughout the United States and throughout the Western world, we can lower our impact on the Amazon because a lot of what is happening in the Amazon is due to the Western needs. I know in Brazil... The majority of the fires and deforestation in the Amazon is due to cattle. They're raising cattle, which a lot of that, if not the majority, is going to the U.S. for hamburgers. I mean, it's insane. People eating two or three hamburgers a day. They're like, I don't know why. We have nothing to eat. Let's go eat a hamburger. And it's like, well, that's the reason why the Amazon is being destroyed. is because they need to keep up with the Western world's demand for cattle, for meat. And so, just knowing those simple things like cause and effect relationship.
0: Yeah. Okay. If
1: I'm eating a bunch of junk food and buying all these, you know, Dorito bags, that's palm oil, which is coming from the Amazon. So, on a very simplistic level, just knowing that you have it and if you, you are re- interconnected with the Amazon through what you do. That's why I think reducing our impact and creating local community and like more sustainable, regenerative connections within where you are is actually the best way to help the Amazon.
0: Wow. And that's such a something we can all do. It's something it's not just like sitting with plant medicine or getting goods or anything like that are from there. I'm sure that's part of it, too. But that's such a great It's such a great starting point and such a good reminder, too, about just the simple things like that, like the palm oil that's there. And and I didn't even realize about the palms, like how much that was threatening the Amazon. So good to know. One of my last questions for you was really about before you went into the Amazon and started to work with the indigenous, what was maybe one of your perceptions going in that changed while you were there? Is there like yeah you have an awesome. idea yeah like an idea of what you thought and then you're like oh okay this is a little different than I thought
1: yeah that's a great great question I think before I went into the community I had sort of like this romantic idea like of indigenous people like holding hands with with feathers and (laughs) painting each other and like you know singing kumbaya and like just like utopian romanticized world right Mm -hmm. but then after going in and living with the communities i realized they're human beings just like us and all human beings have human issues you know whether you're indigenous asian black white whatever we all have these fundamental human issues they have relationship problems i mean i've seen Pe- you know, men and women getting in physical fights. I've seen problems with alcoholism. I've seen, you know, really just interpersonal relationship problems. So for me it was like, oh my gosh, is this not like who my uh, yeah. you know to totally romanticized world? But it's, it's not like, you know, bowing on the ground either to the shamans, like you are like a god, like, tell me, I realized in a lot of ceremonies, actually, that I myself have this capacity, I don't need to sort of idealize a shaman that I myself, you know, am also uh, a light being, yeah. that we all are light beings. And so I think a lot of people, times people also kind of romanticize shamans, but they're just like us, you know, they, they go after the ceremony and they want to watch, you know, go watch TV or they, they have like these other human things as well. So I think after going to the indigenous community, I realized like we all have to see ourselves as equals and as light beings and not romanticize a shaman or someone that's like greater than myself. I realized I'm just as capable and just as you know able as these other spiritual beings yeah. too I think that's the one lesson I learned
0: I love that and that's I would have never get, I love the idea of a shaman just holding like and dealing with like <laughs> spirits and things and people and then he's like all right now it's time for my program so <laughs> I on the TV and
1: like open up a beer
0: and he's like what yeah totally I was like I was like are you guys supposed to be having I guess beer and I are you supposed to be drinking with ayahuasca I guess when you're on like shaman level you're just like the spirit is with me I can have a beer
1: Beer. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's different though. Really, like the the shamans I really respect, actually, one that I'm I'm learning with, he doesn't drink any alcohol, and and he he's completely like on that path. But then I've also sat with other shamans where after the ceremony, it's like kick off the shoes, open up a <laughs> beer, like. <laughs> I need a detox. I need to relax. You know, like you're uh, in the states, you're out of work. You're like, all right. I need a glass of wine. Like
0: totally, totally. I, to I love, I love that perspective. That's so funny. I've recently just on an energetic level stopped kind of like drinking too, just for like a little bit and for you know mm-hmm. until. But I remember hearing that about um about ayahuasca. But I love that. Yeah, you know, long day at the job.
1: Right, (laughs) Hey, um, you know what? Let me bring Jimmy in for a couple questions. I know he he has um, he's really in the activism world too in the Amazon. But we can you can ask him a couple things. Yeah, yeah. And he speaks a little English, but I can also
0: translate. Okay, cool. Hey, Jimmy. Hello, how are is, you? I'm good. Busy day. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I will. I will make this pretty short. But the first thing I want to ask you is just what made you wanted to get into filmmaking? What kind of what kind of called you to get into this line of work?
1: Why did you start to What was the reason you to hacer videos?
2: Yeah, um, te cuento que el cine comunitario es una herramienta super importante en la actualidad eh, porque primero nuestros ancestros en la selva defendían culanzas. Ahorita es cine, eh, es videos.
1: And so he's saying um, community cinema, which is this notion of like making film together uh, is really important today. His ancestors before used to fight with spears in arrows, but in today's world, the media and the cameras are their greatest weapon.
0: Wow, that's incredibly profound. And so, is your focus telling the stories of your tribe, indigenous stories? Are you expanding at all? What is what is the focus of your work?
1: ¿Cuál es el enfoque o la cosa específica de tu trabajo contando stories indígenas de otras comunidades? ¿Cuáles cuáles son los temas? importantes que
2: están recambiando. Sí, verás, hay dos temas principales. Uno tiene que ver con la recuperación, recopilación de las memorias orales, no, nuestros ancestros siempre fueron oralmente, pero en la actualidad se ha perdido esa costumbre, se están perdiendo las memorias orales, lo que nosotros hacemos es recopilar a través de este, eh, videos y guardarlos, y eso va a servir para la futura generación.
1: So the first focus of his filmmaking is to recuperate the oral history and tradition of their ancestors, Mm. all of the stories and all of the Cosmovision and everything basically was transmitted orally and that's being lost today. So actually filming the stories of their own elders and their own uh, community members to uh, preserve their cosmovision and the richness of their culture is one of the main reasons that he started to film. What a beautiful... I think he had a second one,
2: Yeah, la segunda cosa tiene que ver con la lucha y la defensa del territorio y de nuestros derechos como pueblo indígena.
1: Yeah, and so the second reason he started filmmaking was to protect their territory the Amazon, like the lucha, which in Spanish is like the resistance or the fight to keep the Amazon in their territory intact because of all of the threats that have come in is the second reason why he started telling Their story through filmmaking.
0: It's such a smart idea to do too in this digital world that we live in and to be able to reach as many people as we can. That really is the way. And also just to preserve all the history and the oral traditions and especially some of the elders who have, you know, just to keep that wisdom and to especially knowing how important it is and what we were talking about, Kamiko, about just. So many of the different herbs and plants that are in the Amazon that could be exactly what we need as humanity just it's such noble and it's just such important work and I'm grateful that you're both working together on bringing awareness around this particular subject on the Amazon around the indigenous around this entire awakening that we are experiencing right now together. My last question for Jimmy would be what I was just asking you is how can Westerners best support the indigenous from his perspective?
1: Mm-hmm. Um, desde tu perspectiva, ¿cuál es la mejor forma que la gente del mundo occidental puede apoyar la gente en la masonía? Ya,
2: yeah, buenísima la pregunta. Bueno, hay muchas cosas por hacer porque te cuento que, digamos, hay muchos proyectos que llegan a las comunidades ya propuesta con un modelo, con una visión occidental que no encuadra con, la, con las comunidades indígenas. Entonces, para el mejor apoyo, para llegar al pueblo indígena, a sus propias necesidades es trabajar con mesa técnica desde la comunidad, desde la base. De ahí, esas propuestas que salen desde las comunidades van a ser sostenibles y a largo plazo.
1: Yeah, so there's various things that can be done, but one of the important ones is that you know oftentimes Westerners come into Indigenous communities from a, a occidental perspective with like an agenda and they, what they think is best for the Indigenous communities, and they implement projects and then they sort of like disappear or they're not functioning at the long term. And so he's saying one of the best ways is to like work with the Indigenous people, but when they come in to assist, first ask from the Indigenous perspective, what's needed and what they think is the best way to actually create a solution for what's happening. So they're working together, the Westerners and the Indigenous people, but they're really respecting and honouring the Indigenous way of thinking, which is sort of like a completely different system. It's almost like a different language. And so that's one of the important things is is listening to the solution from their perspective.
0: Wow, what a... Absolutely. And you would hope that, you know... It, it's very <laughs> egotistical of the Western world to be like we've got the solution, and then to just like kind of set it up and leave. And that's not at all maybe how it works within like the society or, or their or their tribe. And so I think that's incredibly smart, and hopefully that's being communicated. To the Western, whoever's coming in to help set up programs, that that is something that is kind of a focal point before programs are implemented, that there is this kind of just an explaining. Just that, because I think anybody would be able to understand that, like, if you're going to just change and just flip things upside down, and then you don't plan to stay and see it out for a long period of time to truly either teach others to be in that, or, you know, I I think there is definitely this marrying, like we're saying, this unifying of worlds that the solution is the marrying of the two. It's not one or the other, that it's going to be both. And uh, hopefully the folks that he's working with will continue to listen. I think we can yeah. all do that better. Yeah. So where when when and where does the Roots Awaken come out? Where can people see it?
1: So this year we're in the final stages of post-production. So we're aiming for September for it to be completed. And you know, we're with this new time we're in, cinema is changing. You know, before people would go to theaters and film festivals, but nowadays a lot of things are just online. so we're looking at a new digital way of distributing the film. So we can look out for it um, definitely by the end of this year for news of its release. You can always go to the rootsawaken.com and sign up for the newsletter so you can get an email when, when the film's done.
0: Cool. I will definitely be doing that. And where can people find you on socials, online? How can people track?
1: Yeah, so www.therootsawaken.com and then my Instagram is kumi, K-U-M-I-I-H-A-Y-A-S-H-I. And, yeah, I'm on Comico Facebook, Comigo Hershon Facebook. And I know Jimmy, he has both, you know, his nationality on social media and himself, so he can share.
2: Cool, vas- sí, So
1: on Facebook, it's Nacion, uh, which is nation in Spanish, but in Spanish it's N-A-C-I-O-N. Okay. Siekopai is S-I-E-K-O-P-A-I, but again, I'm sure you can share. Yeah. It.
0: Well, well, I'll I'll put all the links in there too. And actually, before I go, I just have to first say his necklace is awesome. And what it what is actually what are what is it? What are the bones?
1: Okay, le gusta mucho tu collar, ¿sí? ¿Y qué es eso exactamente?
0: Ya. Bueno, yo soy
2: cazador, <laughs> entonces tengo derecho de utilizar. Estos son eh, dientes de 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 puerco del monte diríamos aquí para que podamos entender
1: yeah so you know he the Amazon he said he he's a hunter so they have a right to you know keep the the bones or whatever but it's actually um, an animal it's like Puerto del Monte is like like a boar sort of like a, a wild Amazonian mm-hmm. boar the tusks
0: yeah oh, oh my
2: tusks los dientes
0: uh, teeth Oh, the teeth? Those are the teeth on a wild boar? Dang, I knew those things were nothing to mess with, but now I really see that they're nothing to mess with. Thank you both so much again. I I'm gonna link everything to the film. I can't wait to see it. Thank you for the work that you're doing, Jimmy. I know it wasn't it was short, but thank you for coming on. I just I'm I'm really appreciative. I hope so many people get a chance to see this. I know I told my mom that we were talking about this, and she was like, I can't wait to see that. <laughs> so thank you so
1: much. Yeah, for the opportunity and for hosting this, and really important work that you're doing to share this with your community and the people listening. So we're really appreciative for the opportunity. Thank you.
0: Awesome. Thank you. And for everyone, as always, trip on this.